Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Telling the Story podcast, a look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. Guys, it's time for a clip show, a best of edition, if you will. Looking through the list of the first 30 podcasts the other day, I noticed some recurring themes among some of my guests, and I wanted to put those similar interviews together into a few episodes that reflect specific topics. So today, we are starting with episode 31, Why We Act the Way We Do. And I'm not talking about journalists or storytellers. I'm talking about the recipients of journalism and storytelling. How do our audiences behave? Why do they respond certain ways? And how does or should this affect our work? First up, episode number 17, Ryan Schmeiser, venture capitalist by day, author for the website Medium by Night. He wrote a great piece called 10 Reasons You Will Read This Medium Post, all about why we love lists. The article itself was inventive and impressive and naturally kept me hooked. And sure enough, Schmeiser offers tremendous insights on why we do keep clicking on those list-type articles. Here are some of his favorite reasons. Um, I think some of the other ones that uh, were pretty interesting was the idea of the sunk cost fallacy, this idea that once we start reading through lists, we become progressively more inclined to finish them because we're going through the points um, and we are averse to loss. We don't want to walk away once we've started to commit, so we often see these lists through to completion. Um, those two were pretty interesting, but um, I think you know, a, a bunch of the stuff that uh, came up, I think uh, the readers found uh, a little bit unusual, a little bit interesting. Yeah, and you know what I liked about it from a storytelling perspective is that you basically set up the challenge for yourself. You tell readers exactly what they're going to do, and then you guide them along as they do it. Were you confident that such a plan would work? <laughs> well, I was, I was a little bit nervous, um, and you know, I actually addressed this specifically in one of the points. I think it was point eight, this idea that you know, I thought readers would uh, see this title, and some of them would actually click on the list because they would want a chance to prove me wrong, to prove that they wouldn't, in fact, uh, read through these 10 reasons. And in fact, you know, that, that motivation is this idea of autonomy over our destinies and this, uh, ex this experience of satisfaction we get when we feel in control and the ability to feel like we can walk away from the list at any time. So I was aware of that when writing the list. What I tried to do was uh, be succinct, be informative, back it up with a ton of evidence, um, present titles that are a little bit uh, surprising to give a, a sense of cognitive dissonance and keep people uh, intrigued and reading on. Um, but I think that the way I approached it was try to be slightly humorous in, in the title and uh, in the name of each bullet point, but uh, really try to substantiate it with a bunch of research and be respectful to the readers um, as they went through the, uh, the list. Um, I think also I was helped along tremendously by the fact that these list form articles do in fact work. They do incline people to pursue these lists and read them to completion. You talk about how people gravitate towards lists because they're easy. Now it seems like in terms of, you know, quote-unquote traditional media, reputable media, so many blogs, so many reputable media sites find themselves gravitating towards writing and publishing list-type articles as opposed to your traditional, uh, you know, traditional stories. As someone who obviously reads a lot and obviously is very analytical about this stuff, do you consider this a positive thing? Sure. So I think that the, the, it falls into a couple broad categories. The first is this idea that people are just trying to get as many eyeballs as possible and often present uh, pretty trivial content in the form of lists and draw people in that way. Um, 
and I actually mentioned this in one of my points, lists are so tempting because they present the illusion of a satisfactory, quick fix, and comprehensive information in the form of a very digestible list. Um, and our brains gravitate toward uh, the law of least effort. They want to consume that content in the simplest way possible. So I think that partially um, it's, in fact, a bad thing. You've seen you know, anybody that spends time on the Internet has seen the massive increase in the amount of list form articles, uh, many of them trivial. But I do think that you know, sometimes hardcore factual information that is hard to digest is often well served in list form. Our brains prefer processing this information spatially in list form. It makes it easier to digest, easier to remember. Um, so I think that there, are, you know, there is a place for lists online. I think that, unfortunately, uh, the, the more common form of list article online is uh, the trivial 50 cutest cats, uh, 20 <laughs> ways to lose 100 pounds overnight. Um, right, right, right. But I do think that there is, a, there is room certainly for high-quality articles that are themselves lists. That was Ryan Schmeiser on Why We Love Lists. Next up, episode 22, Dr. Paul J. Zak. Like Schmeiser, he is not a journalist by trade. He is a professor at Claremont Graduate University in California, and he wrote a terrific piece about the science of storytelling. How do our brains work and what hooks us to reading or watching or listening to a story? I could never get Dr. Zach to stop referring to what he calls our lazy Republican brains, but other than that, Dr. Zach offered some fascinating insights on how audiences work. We find that print stories that begin uh, with a sort of a hot open, right, a really good first paragraph, people stay engaged much longer. So two things can happen. So I have, I have a kind of a slow open, and either you kind of grab me, or it's a slow open and I just space out and I don't get it, right? So I think this says that that first paragraph and even the title are great signals that something exciting is going to happen here. And in this kind of lazy brain world, if something's not happening, eh, I have other things I can do with my attention. So attention's the first part. Go ahead. You want to follow up? And then we'll do the second part. Yeah. So you get that 20 seconds. And does it matter necessarily how you capture the attention? Does it need to be a character? Does it need to be, uh, you know, a, a compelling sentence or a whiz-bang piece of video? What, uh, what is the key there? Or is there a key there? Uh, so far, we haven't found many differentiators. So you're asking exactly the right writing uh, perspective. And we haven't actually dissected that first paragraph enough. We've, we've done probably, um, neurologically, we've studied probably a couple of dozen stories, maybe 30. So we don't have enough writing now to tell you this is yeah. the best opening paragraph. But we find is after about 20 seconds, if there's not some kind of character development, that I don't start building the ties with the characters in the story. So if I'm going to use the first paragraph just to describe the space I'm in or the outdoors or whatever, you know, the reader or viewer will give you a little leeway, but at some point the human's got to enter and there's got to be enough tension to keep my attention. So if we think of this sort of classic dramatic arc or Freytag triangle, right, this kind of developing tension. And the reason for that is because, sadly, you have a lazy Republican brain. And if you don't <laughs> sustain this attention, then, you know, the story's going to start to fall flat. So, you know, many writers know this, right? The, the story starts great and ends great and it sags in the middle. So um, we can talk a little about how to work against the middle sag. And actually the neuroscience is sort of surprising on that. But, yeah, starting strong, having characters develop right away and characters with some tension. Because, again, that even though we avoid tension in our daily lives, we love tension when it comes to a story. 
So you've got me hooked 20 seconds in. Then what? Then I need to start caring about this character. So I've got to actually put some flesh on the bones. So once I have that character in some situation of peril or in some uh, crisis or uh, a, a character who is desiring something that we ourselves might desire. I wish I hadn't broke up with my uh, darling girlfriend. I wish I could see my child again, but now I'm stuck in a Turkish prison prison for selling heroin or whatever. So now I have a tension, right? Actually, that statement, I have two tensions. I have, I'm stuck in a prison and I can't see my loved ones, right? So now I'm like, okay, what are you doing in prison? How'd you get here, right? So I'm actually building in hooks so that I want to keep turning the page or watching the video. And again, what we see is that if there's not this growing tension, if this, so we, we've created stories that are just flat. So they open fine, things are happening, you're attending to it, and it's just this you know, linear story. It doesn't actually have a story arc. And after about 20 or 30 seconds, you can just see the neurologic data. The brain is just kind of disengaging. And so it's, uh, in particular, if I want to be persuasive, if I want to encourage you to behave in some certain way after the story ends, I need to sustain attention, capture attention, sustain attention, and have this character development where in this lazy Republican brain world, what the characters are doing, we as herd creatures implicitly understand, oh, apparently the humans are now taking care of stray dogs. That's what I see in my story. So I have a period of time, uh, we've measured up to a week afterwards, in which we become predisposed to doing what we see in the story. So this is the example of if you watch like the movie 300 or something, right? Oh, I'm going to work out like crazy. I love this. Right? And after a week, it wears off. Okay, I'm over <laughs> that now. Right? But we do, I think as, as writers and storytellers, we have an amazing opportunity to actually not only influence the way people feel and think, but in fact how they behave. That's Paul J. Zak, doctor and professor at Claremont Graduate University. My final guest is my most recent of the three, episode 29 Clive Thompson, award-winning freelance writer for Wired, The New York Times, and more. Thompson specializes in discussing technology and language, and during our podcast, he focused on how language is evolving today more quickly than ever. You can thank social media, you can thank the availability of writing and video, but here's Thompson's take on what's going on. This all started when... uh... I guess I had been noticing a kind of an interesting trend in the way people, uh, the the way that they communicate and write on various social media platforms, um, ranging from Twitter to uh, to you know sort of things, um, uh, you know tech messages you'll see sometimes appended to pictures on on Instagram uh, or Yik Yak, which is sort of an anonymous geolocated. Thing that a lot of younger people use to to talk anonymously about subjects, and I've been noticing. Here's what I've been noticing, um, and you, as soon as I describe it, you'll you'll have seen it too. It's it's people making a status update or a statement that it feels like it's only part of a sentence. Like someone would go, "That feeling when you wake up and realize you slept in," uh, or or they would go, you know, say something like, um, "When you race down." to reach the subway and see the train leaving the platform. Uh, you know, it, it was it, like, it's just sort of a part of a sentence like that. It's intended to communicate something to put you in a situation, but it's not, it's really not a full sentence. And this is a very, very common thing over and over again. So I started to think this is super interesting. When did this start happening? Why do people like it? And what's going on linguistically? You know, 
if it's become a big trend, if people use it a lot, it must be because it satisfies some sort of communication need, right? You know, these things, these things emerge for a reason. And the fun part is figuring out what the reasons might be. So, so I started uh, calling up uh, linguists I know who, who, who pay specific attention to kind of like, you know, internet speak, right? Like, you know, the type of language you see used, uh, you know, in, in chat and messaging and social networks. And, uh, and uh, and I had and basically, you know, I, I talked to you know Ben Zimmer. He's a he's a guy who writes for the Wall Street Journal and for Vocabulary.com, and Gretchen McCullough, who has written uh, prodigiously about language and thought about this. And so I chatted with them, and and what came up was that you know really it's it's this very interesting thing, which is it's it's uh, it's a uh, it's a uh, um, it's it's a dependent clause is officially what it's called um, uh, because it's a part of a sentence that depends on something else. But you're but the person is being very sly when they write these sentences. They're not actually saying the thing that it depends on. Like for example, you know, uh, there's someone who wrote, you know, you know, uh, on Yikek, I saw this this funny statement that was, you know, when you see a picture of her holding her dog. On Tinder, and you're like, cute dog, um, right? <laughs> and and, so, and, you, and you said like, you know, and and you know, really, the full sentence would be something like, you know, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a bittersweet feeling when you see someone holding a dog right. uh, on their phone. The implication and, 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 is a universal emotion. Yeah, anyway. exactly. The person is, and really, what, what these linguists said is, the person's trying to when they're, when they're doing that, they're first off, they're creating kind of a little puzzle because you have to fill in. The gap, you have to fill in what's not said. So it's sort of like it draws the reader of that utterance in a little bit, right? You know, to try and complete, you know, what that sentence is saying. And secondarily, like, yeah, exactly like you said, it's also trying to make it sort of a universal emotion. It's trying to like say, this is not something that happened to me. This is something that happens to everyone. This is the feeling when this happens to you. This is that moment when, right? Because they're not saying this happened to me or I have that experience, they're, they're making it this kind of funny, like universal statement. Um, so there's a bunch of these really interesting reasons. And you know, this is a really weird thing to do because, you know, as these linguists point out, you know, we have a long history of slang, right? Slang goes back centuries, you know, centuries and centuries of slang. It's very common for us to create slang. And it's very common for new technologies to create new types of slang, you know, like uh, uh, we got a lot of net slang. We got funny new words. We got contractions like LOL, uh, um, you know, and whatnot. But this is different because this is people mucking around with what makes a sentence a sentence. This is them. This is them. Right. You know, it's kind of screwing around with syntax, not just not just words, but the actual the, the structure of a sentence. And this and so and and the funny thing is, like, no one could really say why this is happening, right? I mean, you know, my hypothesis is I think it's because we've had this massive shift in the last fifteen years. Um, where suddenly the average person does tons more writing. Like that people did not do you – know, most journalists have trouble appreciating this, but the average person, you know, before the internet came along, when they left high school, they left college, and they wrote their papers for high school, they wrote their papers for college, but after they graduated, they really did basically no writing for the rest of their lives. Maybe some memos for work, that was it. Now people write prodigiously, and they write about weird things. Like they write about things they would never – they might have written a memo about paperclip appropriations for their, for their company, but they were not going to write their thoughts about a movie or, or something I saw or an article or, a, or an anime they're, they're looking at. They wouldn't have had these discussions of their emotions. So because we've had this shift where so much more conversational stuff is happening in the written form, I think it's almost like an evolutionary 
pressure to um, pushing language forward into new areas because the pace of experimentation is higher. You know, that, that, that volume of writing is, sort of, is allowing way more experiments to happen way more quickly. Fascinating stuff from Clive Thompson, and we appreciate his taking the time. That's it. That's it for this Best Of podcast. One more Best Of will be coming in the next week or two. In the meantime, the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.